Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Cobb County School District Superintendent Chris Ragsdale talks about the decision to start the school year all online. I want the community to know that, that we do take the health of their students when they send them to our schools as the top priority. So that truly um, at the top of the decision-making tree. Now that conversation is coming up in just a moment. But first, Atlanta police cite the arrest of eight people involved with protests last night. Protesters marched to the Zone 5 precinct, shattered a window, and then threw fireworks at officers. Now the protest was connected to the police shooting of 29-year-old Jacob Blake. Blake, a black man, was shot seven times by a police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, this past Sunday. Blake's father and family attorneys say the father of three remains hospitalized in critical condition and is now paralyzed. And the shooting was captured on cell phone video. In a statement to WABE, police confirmed one officer was injured last night after being sprayed with mace. In other news, Governor Brian Kemp is urging Georgians to continue a series of preventive measures to stop the spread of the coronavirus. It's called Four Things for Fall. First, wear a mask. Second, practice social distancing. Three, wash your hands regularly. And four, follow the guidance of public health officials detailed in our executive orders. These four things will require some sacrifice and grit, but these four actions will save lives, and jobs. So do it for your family and friends. Do it for your faith community or do it for college football. No matter your reason, hunker down, stay focused, and do four things for fall. Together, we will protect lives and livelihoods. With your help, we will beat COVID-19 and secure a safe, healthy, and prosperous future for our state. A White House task force report acknowledged that Georgia has made gains, but said the state needs to accelerate its improvements. Georgia still has the second-highest new case count in the nation. And at this time, the State Department of Public Health reports there are 258,354 confirmed coronavirus cases here in the state. Now, while the number of active hospitalizations is decreasing, right now the state reports 23,717 are hospitalized. And of those, 4,322 are ICU admissions. Now 5,262 Georgians have died due to the coronavirus. And of course, this is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And this is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. During a school board meeting back in July, the top leader of the second largest school district in Georgia announced that the district would welcome students back to school virtually. 
Now, during that meeting, Cobb County School District Superintendent Chris Ragsdale said this. That we will be starting the school year on August the 17th, and we will be doing that virtually. Um, this is not um, to say that we are going to do virtual for the entire year. It's not to say that we're going to do virtual for the first semester. It's not to say we're going to do virtual for any specified amount of time. However, uh, it is to say that um, we will be starting the school year on August 17th in a virtual environment. Well, it's been one week as we continue our conversations with area school superintendents. Joining me now to talk more about Cobb County Schools virtual return and the district's phase model for face-to-face instruction is Cobb County School District Superintendent Chris Ragsdale. Superintendent Ragsdale, thanks for taking the time as always. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Appreciate the opportunity. Glad to be with you. Before we get into that, let's begin with what happened on Monday in the online learning. Now, Zoom was out for some time. I'm curious, were educators able to get the school day started? You know, it's uh, it's been a bumpy start. There, You know, mm. there's no disagreeing with that. I, I don't think anybody could say anything other than it's been a bumpy start for us in Cobb. And I know other districts have different challenges, some of the same, some of the different, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's been a bumpy start. Um, you know, once we would get uh, one issue resolved, it seemed like there was another it was, uh, that would pop up. So, according to Zoom worldwide, uh, but then, you know, you would talk to people that use it for their work and such, and, and it was working for them. So, there's mm-hmm. kind of no rhyme or reason to that. I get the frustration. My background is technology. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, you know, there there has been no other technological project that I've implemented in this kind of window. Um, you know, normally you have literally years of planning um, to implement, you know, 113,000 students hitting a system, uh, logging into the system, using that system, 8,000 teachers using that system to teach remotely. We have been in production hard and fast, and unfortunately, we're having to work out some of these issues uh, that normally you would have, have had time. And, and I know some people would say, well, you've had since March. Mm-hmm. But literally, we flipped the switch and, and went to remote learning overnight, Friday the 13th. Uh, you know, I, I keep saying that because when you say March 13th, it doesn't really resonate like Friday the 13th. I mean, mm-hmm. truly, there could be no uh, better description of a Friday the 13th than back in March um, when this pandemic was just getting ramped up. And we didn't really know anything about it, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. There was a lot of fear. Um, and angst, and and I'm not sure that that most of that has dissipated uh, by now. So you're saying even with the time that you had in between from March until when school started here in August, and then you mentioned it's been off to a bumpy start, I was going to ask, how would you assess after one week and what things are going well? But can you tell me what things have been going well with the online learning? There's got to be yeah, something, I mean, right? Like I said, I, I think, uh, again, it's a bumpy start, uh, but once we get the issues ironed out, and, and we do, once they uh, pop up, our teachers are awesome, and, and I know they're getting frustrated as well because they're having to go to plan B, and, and I know all of them have a plan B. We have uh, invested uh, in, in this platform, so we expect it to work and, and work well. And uh, that message has been clearly communicated and, and uh, you know, we're, we're getting there. Um, again, I would have loved to have been able to say day one last Monday, um, it's a smooth start, everything's great, you know, um, but 
just the reality was uh, we had some hurdles to overcome. We are overcoming those. Let me ask you this, Superintendent Ragsdale, to your knowledge, do all the students in the district have access to a learning device that they need, whether it be a Chromebook or laptop or what have you? I know there were some households that that's a challenge for them as well as connectivity. We have, but I can tell you there are still students that uh, need devices and we are still deploying those devices. So uh, when we started school. So they're just not logging on then. Some of them, some of them are not, I'm sure, um, because they don't have, they need a device. And and I, I don't have the, the data this morning. Um, last week when we started, we had deployed um, right at 30,000 devices. Um, so we had uh, at that point in time, uh, a little over 36,000 requests, if memory serves me correct. And, uh, I, and, and the challenge there was since last Saturday, up until the board meeting of last Thursday, we had received uh, 6,000 requests. So the requests are still coming in, even though we're in school. Um, but prior to the first day of school, we had actually deployed 27,000 uh, devices. So that's a huge undertaking in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we are proud of that. But at the same time, we know that there are still students in need of devices. Um, just like, you know, when we closed and and we started uh, deploying food or making food available for students um, to come in and get. Um, We've done the same thing to start the school year uh, for those students uh, on free and reduced. Um, We're actually allowing them to place orders and then come and pick up a week's worth of meals for their students. The parents can pick it up for their students. So it is a huge lift. Um, for us to do school virtually with with no students in school. Um, But at the same time, uh, we've got to make sure that that when we do bring those students and teachers and staff back, that it's into a safe environment in the classroom. So to to get back to your to your first question, Mm -hmm. yes, we still have students that are um, submitting uh, device need requests and, and we are meeting those. Matter of fact, we've actually ordered several thousand additional um, devices. Now, of course, every other school district in the country has done the same thing. Um, so there, there's a delay in getting those devices, sure. but we're also having teachers, you know, make connections with students, reach out to those students. And, and, and it's not something we have to ask the teachers to do. They do that because they're great teachers. It is a, a truly a one team effort right now. Let's switch gears a moment. I know you're a sports fan. I'm a sports fan. Some sports are in full swing. High school football is going to be starting up soon. Do you have concerns about the health and safety of the players and the coaches and support staff? And also, will you fans know, be allowed at the games in cop at the cop schools? Yeah, great questions. Um, you know, I, I was really surprised when Big Ten and Pac-12 you can tell we're SEC fans down here. I know y'all just right. y'all you know think I mean? it's the best conference ever. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, I was really surprised when ACC and SEC didn't follow suit after the the Big Ten and Pac-12 did. So now rewind before that, and we were communicating uh, with the State Department of Education as well as GHSA, which is the Georgia High School Association. Mm-hmm. Um, GHSA actually governs uh, all high school sports. Right. I've so had a conversation with the, yeah, I've had a conversation right. with them. Mm-hmm. Right. So we were following and still are 
following their guidelines. Um, so when they allowed student athletes to come back um, for conditioning under very close protocols, we were following those, we're still following those. Um, and so I feel good about the, the athletes in the way that they have been, and the, and the coaches, the way that they have been following the protocols. Now, that being said, football uh, is a much different environment on the field than baseball, softball, volleyball, uh, et cetera. So um, it, it, it is, there's always going to be a concern, right? There, there's not going to be a time where we don't have a concern, I don't think, in the, in the near future for anybody in close contact. That being said, though, uh, getting back to, your, to the next part of the question, we are limiting fans. Um, basically, it's it's going to come down to literally family members of athletes hmm. because uh, most districts have come together and synced up on um, 30% capacity, um, somewhere between 25 and 30% capacity of the stadium and socially distanced. So we kind of had a dress rehearsal on that uh, when we did our graduation ceremonies. Uh, we did those at McEachern High School, all, all 17 of them. Um, so... We, we got a, a good dress rehearsal on how to space out people in the stands, uh, mm -hmm. socially distance and, and check them uh, for symptoms and temperature screenings, et cetera, as they come in. So that will be followed. Um, concession stands and, and such will not be serving any um, warm cooked uh, food. It's all prepackaged. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some protocols that GHSA has put out and we're following those as are most school districts uh, in the metro Atlanta area. Now, but they're also given, but they're also giving the school districts and leaders like you, you all have the authority that if you feel the need to suspend any of the fall sports, you can do that for concerns out of Safety, health and safety, if you see a spike or you see one confirmed case. So you all have that. You, you can make that decision. You may not want to do it, but what would it take? I mean, are you, one case, two cases, an outbreak? Yeah, it's, it, that's really a hard question to answer. The Metro superintendents meet regularly uh, via Zoom. You know, I think if, if there's a silver lining to any of this, and I wouldn't even call it a silver lining, but have being able to see the ability to come together remotely so you don't have to come to one place to have a meeting. I think that it's been a benefit because I don't think the Metro superintendents have met uh, in person since I've been a superintendent as many times as we have met via Zoom, um, just like we're doing now. Um, so we are trying to stay coordinated and synced up in the Metro Atlanta area because mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is we all play each other as opponents. Mm -hmm. So if one district does something and the other district doesn't or does something 180 degrees the other way, it's going to be a negative impact regardless of what the decisions are or the reasons they were made. So we're trying to make sure that we're all synced up. I know uh, some districts have pushed pause. Uh, for a week or two, and I know that GHSA pushed off, uh, so canceled scrimmage games and then pushed off the start of the season until September the 4th. Mm -hmm. So, and there was still, you know, the the thought that GHSA was going to do additional um, pushbacks or requirements, those kind of things, and they have to some degree. I think what people need to hear, and unfortunately we have become very much attuned to what the contact tracing protocols are when we encounter a positive case. And unfortunately, and this goes back to all of us doing everything we can, unfortunately, what we're seeing is when we have 
an athlete, a coach, an adult, a student test positive, or even multiple students test positive, that contact tracing protocol shows they didn't do they didn't get it at practice at the workout at school. They actually got it off campus to where they went and got together, or you know they went to you know hang out or or you know what kids do um, mm-hmm. and the the vast majority of those that's what we're seeing um, is that they're actually contacting the close contact the high risk contact where you have to quarantine for 14 days are happening off campus so we really really have to stress and emphasize you know we can't let our guard down you know i mean yes it is a serious pain you know mm-hmm. we we are a society in this country that's used to doing what we want when we want where we want how we want and this has put a serious, you know, hurdle uh, in front of that, uh, whether it's wearing a mask or whether it's, you know, not being able to have full capacity at a restaurant, you know, your, your favorite Mexican restaurant on a Friday night kind of thing. But it's so important for us to maintain um, and continue our due diligence as we get through this because the, the data shows it's working, right? When, when our cases in Cobb are trending now down below 300, when they were above 400 two weeks ago, that shows that what we are doing is working. And what we can't do is let our guard down, go back to normal, and then all of a sudden the cases spike right back up. Before I let you go, there are a couple other student populations I want to talk about also, Superintendent, which is your students with special needs. What can you say about what you all are trying to to provide for those students in their households? Yeah, you're right. You're 100 percent right. Um, and, you know, the, the some of the students with special needs are, are labeled as medically fragile and, and there could not be a more apt description for students uh, than medically fragile students that we have to take extra steps for to ensure their health and safety. Um, but at the same time, we also know that students with special needs, just like uh, elementary age students, are in that group of students that truly just direly need um, face-to-face instruction. Um, so matter of fact, I got an email. Uh, one of the emails that I read in the last board meeting was from, uh, parents and grandparents from students with special needs. One of them actually had a pre-K special needs student and, and was praising the work, um, that their teacher was doing for their student. Uh, and they said they could tell that they were getting it. Granted, it was remote, uh, just as that's a very positive story. I know there are many Um, stories that are not as positive. So we've got to make sure um, that we're doing everything we can while we are in remote um, to to bring those students uh, to the level of engagement that they need to be. But also that's why they're they're in that first phase Mm -hmm. um, of all the low incidence special needs students will be brought back K-12 in that first phase when we're doing just K-5 regular ed students. And then phase two, which is middle school students, and then two weeks later, high school students would follow in phase three. Here's the question I guess everybody wants to know. First question is, before each phase is carried out, though, you all will allow parents to make a decision whether or not they want their kids to return or continue with remote learning. That's an option for them? Or is it not an option? It is an option. Okay. Then here's the other question. Yes, it is an option. Okay. So then the other question is, that's great, Superintendent. So what metric will you use to make the decision when phase one will even begin? Exactly. And that is the question uh, that's being asked. And, and just like I, I communicated in the last board meeting publicly, 
I've said there are three parameters that we were gauging uh, for when that day would come or when we could even start planning for that day to come. Mm -hmm. Number one, first and foremost, is the community spread, the level of spread in, in specifically Cobb County. Um, and that's what I mentioned. It had dropped below 300 and it's mm -hmm. trending down. That is a primary indicator for us to be back into face-to-face -face mode, but also um, an efficient contact tracing protocol and closely related to that is timeliness and effectiveness of the COVID-19 testing. But if you were able to make the decision that with all those parameters we feel comfortable, we're going to enter phase one, would you require students, teachers, and staff to wear a mask? And how do you implement the social distancing? We would have well? to... Yeah. That, the, now, the second question is much more difficult. <laughs> the, the I know kindergartners, they, they, it's hard for them to not social distance. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> we have a hard enough time getting them walking a straight line, right? So uh, that being said, though, uh, when, when we look to start that phase, phase one coming back, um, masks are, are certainly going to be an integral part of us being able to interact. We have seen what happens when other districts have students not wearing masks and then in close proximity. So uh, masks would, would most certainly be part of us coming back. Um, now, the second part, though, the, the, the social distancing, um, you know, that that's why we have space in between each phase um, mm -hmm. to make sure that we're not going to see a spike in that two-week period um, when, when we bring students back. Because social distancing, you know, social distancing on a school bus is just not possible. Mm -hmm. um, we can't do it. So we're going to have to make sure we've got protocols in place other than social distancing that are going to allow us to come back. And we should note, I don't want to put it all on the little kindergartners because apparently some college age students don't know how to social distance. So that's, I'll be fair. <laughs> that. I'll get an email superintendent says, why are you picking on kindergartners? As we wrap up, what is the overall message you want parents, students, your educators, your Cobb County School District community to, community to know as it relates to your own philosophy and approach to not just students returning, but your concerns, anything that you want them to know? Yeah, I mean, you know, we are working um, so hard um, to come back to face-to-face. -face. Again, we're watching these numbers. I want the community to know that, that we do take the health of their students when they send them to our schools as the top priority. Um, just like when we ask our employees to come back, we take their health and safety as the top priority. So that that's truly um, at the top of the decision-making tree, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that, um, you know, you asked about masks. Um, I it, it's so disappointing um, to see a pandemic um, that literally hundreds of thousands of people have died from um, become political. Um, and and I, I always talk to my staff, uh, all employees before the start of each school year and say, you know, everybody has got their own personal political opinions. But when we come to work at the Cobb County School District, we all leave them at the house. Um, that nobody should be able to tell how you vote when you come to work in the Cobb County School District. That's what I tell all of our employees and, and myself included. So if there is anything that should be apolitical, it's the education of students, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're in the middle of a pandemic, 
we have to be able to say we're looking at the health and safety of students and the health and safety of staff and teachers as the top priority. There, there are no politics being, you know, I've gotten the email, you're caving to political pressure. You're, you, you know, you're just catering to this side or the other. And there couldn't, nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, truly, this is an all hands on deck. Um, and, and the message I sent to our employees before we started back was, we need to be the example of how one team can come together for the greater good. And, and truly, I've gotten emails um, from, from both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you had parents, look, Superintendent Raxdale, you had parents with signs and some of the kids you know, demanding that you have in-class instruction. I mean, you, you told them just exactly what you told me, I imagine, correct? That's correct. Were yes. you surprised that for some of them, that for some, that maybe they weren't looking at this from a broader range and maybe not just thinking of their own students or their own kids and I can't speak to you know where people are coming from um, I can only speak to where I'm coming from um, and it is truly from a, a, a desire and a directive to get back into face-to-face mode but at the same time we got to make sure we're doing it in the safest manner possible and I understand when I say that there are two sides to that argument two distinct sides to that argument um, but we fortunately have had the advantage of seeing how other districts around us um, have have come back to face-to-face mode and had to close schools, close classrooms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we've had the benefit of seeing how that has impacted a community and a district um, because the school is the central point of a community. Um, we know that. So when we say that, that we're going to do something based on x data um people are going to say okay what does x data have to say and and i've been very clear in in saying now um you know i threw out the number 200 um Mm -hmm. at the last board meeting but i was very deliberate in saying that does not mean a we have to get to 200 or b if we get to 200 the the switch is flipped that is a target and the data has to be trending toward that target for us to feel comfortable in pulling the trigger for phase one restart. And again, all of us have our fingers crossed and are holding our breath for Labor Day holiday and also the the fall break, Mm -hmm. right? That many districts in the Metro Atlanta have and still, I would assume the others still have, we are going to to observe that fall break. And I know a lot of families use that time period to travel. And I'm not saying not to travel, but I'm saying we have to keep our guard up such that wherever you travel to, when you come back, we don't have another spike in cases because the, the timing of that could impact either the next phase or the start of the first phase. And we certainly don't want to see that happen. Cobb County School District Superintendent Chris Ragsdale, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. And a programming note, this next segment may contain descriptions of violence. On a recent edition of Closer Look, I spoke with Saganthi Simon. She's a programs officer at the Arthur Blank Foundation, and we talked about the organization's current initiatives during this pandemic. And during our conversation, she talked about this. We've seen an enormous growth in number of people who are contacting the Westside Empowerment Center, which is to provide adults with a safe and healthy coaching and counseling for trauma and mental health and wellness support. There are a number of people who are lonely, who are depressed, who are anxious. And then there's certainly a lot of people who are now in unsafe conditions. So domestic violence calls have increased about 50% to that center. There are families and children who were not in safe environments, but school was an outlet. And so Chris 180 has been sending community health workers to do wellness checks when they deliver food. And that's been critical to getting people the support that they need. Now, this rise in domestic violence cases isn't just happening here in Atlanta. It's an issue nationwide and globally. As a matter of fact, in April, United Nations Secretary Antonio Guterres called for measures to counter a, quote, horrifying global surge in domestic violence during the pandemic. And a study published in May by two Brigham Young University professors found a 10% increase in domestic violence calls to police in 14 areas throughout the country. That's something my next guest is working on right here in Georgia. Her name is Katha Blackwell, and she's vice president of Shelter and Supportive Housing Services with the Partnership Against Domestic Violence. Katha Blackwell, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. Your response to that clip we just played in which Saganthi Simon talked about an increase in calls and people needing assistance as it relates to domestic violence during this pandemic, I take it that's not lost on you. Absolutely. Um, That is very accurate. Our our calls for domestic violence have definitely surged during um, COVID-19 during the pandemic. Uh, At first, the calls were kind of, we were seeing a decrease at the very beginning of the pandemic um, back in March. And so we assumed that a lot of survivors were not able to call us or reach us because their abuser may have been home most of the day Mm. and they weren't able to get away from him. Um, But as soon as, um, as soon as April hit, I would say we saw a huge influx of calls um, with even more violence over the phone where people who were trying to, get out of abusive situations, have the abuser in the background screaming at them, or um, they may have just gotten attacked or may have um, just gotten raped or assaulted by their uh, their husband or, or boyfriend. And so we have definitely seen an increase in surge, and, and the greatest impact has been on the um, on the children involved mm-hmm. with these various situations as well. So it's it's definitely with the, with the, the other um, stations or researchers have been showing in regards to the increase of domestic violence across across the globe. It's very accurate. That's very accurate, yes. So you all have recordings and calls where you're able to hear this violence interaction that's taking place. 
absolutely. It's at times when people are in domestic violence situations, there there may be a time where they don't necessarily call the police, and they may have heard of partnership against domestic violence, and they reach out to us for services because they they're not sure what to do. And it may be that they had hoped that the abuser may have left in the moment, but in actuality, he was still in the home, and they they'll be on the phone with us and the abusers in the background, and we're we're trying to safety plan with them to figure out where they can go to be safe or can they call us back when they get to a safe place or if necessary we'll call the police on their behalf if we have their um, address and contact information and is this mostly because you so far reference males is this mostly intimate partner violence where the abuser has been a male mostly that's accurate um it's not with every case the majority of our cases are women who are the victim and the domestic violence relationship. However, there are men that we serve as well who have been victims of domestic violence as well. Mm. For listeners who may not be familiar with your organization, uh, you all obviously provide services and resources, but the Partnership Against Domestic Violence is also about awareness as well because you all work throughout the state, correct? Yes, that's correct. So what we have is um, community outreach advocates as well as a teen dating advisory board that goes out into the community to educate various um, businesses, various schools, various um, healthcare providers about domestic violence and how they can go about providing services to those who they may come in contact who are survivors of domestic violence. In addition to that, we provide educational um, information for middle schools and high schools about teen dating violence um, in order for the teens to gain understanding as to what the red flags of a violent relationship are as well as we provide support groups in the community to those who may not necessarily be ready to leave their abusive relationship, but they are still seeking to talk with someone on a regular basis. So we have support groups throughout the community. Right now, those support groups, of course, are are virtual. Uh, A lot of our services right now are virtual due to the pandemic. However, we are still doing as much as we can to help those in need during this time um, that are dealing with domestic violence. And I would like to also add that we have, um, we provide free domestic violence therapy for survivors who are, are seeking to speak with someone one-on-one. Those are free services that we provide to community clients as well. Well, that was my next question because we were in a pandemic, as we all know. And I know that based on what you said now, you've kind of answered this, that has hindered uh, you all being able to continue your normal duties. How challenging is that for you all? You, you're offering services virtually right now. Do you foresee when y'all might be able to change that and have people come to support groups or, you know, I don't know if you all send caseworkers, are you able to get some folks out to these households? Yeah, it, this, it, this is an unprecedented time. Um, and so we are learning day by day what approaches or new approaches we can take with engaging with people virtually. Um, currently, right now, we utilize a variety of platforms, of virtual platforms, in order to reach our clients and provide the services that they would normally get in person. Um, but we have, we've, we've, we've learned that as, as long as we have the technology available, to provide the services that clients need, then they will still come. Um, we definitely have seen an increase of clients coming to our support groups as well as to and getting involved with our um, our virtual therapy services online. Uh, it is has been a, a, a troublesome time because we really want to um, be connected with the clients during this time. Mm-hmm. I um, 
I was having actually a conversation with our staff uh, at a staff meeting a couple of weeks ago, and I was telling, you know, they were expressing how they miss being together, miss um, working together, as well as miss being face-to-face with the clients. And, you know, in this field, we're, we're, we're called social workers because we're used to being social um, with people. And so it, it does have its, its difficulties, but we are doing as much as we can to um, get survivors to a safe place, um, especially with, when it comes to um, survivors not being in, a, in, in, in our shelters or being able to come and visit us in person, it can be really isolating for the survivor. So right now, with the pandemic taking place, clients are not able to come directly into shelter. So we've been placing them into extended stays for a temporary time, um, and at least for a week, and then we move them into our shelter. But during that time, it's so important for us to stay present in their life, to call them, to reach out to them, to make sure that their needs are met so they don't feel alone during this time. So it, it definitely has its, its difficulties, but um, we're definitely doing as, as much as we possibly can. For those households who want to take advantage and use the, the, the virtual online, ther- the virtual therapy sessions, now we get into a situation where maybe connectivity is a challenge. Uh-huh. How are you all able to help in that regard? Well, that is such a good question. Um, with those families who may not have Wi-Fi in their home, which we, it didn't dawn on a lot of us until we got into this, that, you know, Wi-Fi is a, is a luxury. You know, it's like something, you know, but it's definitely a need right now. Um, we have done as much as we can in regards to figuring out a way for them to get connected to us Um whether it may be through a local public library that has Wi-Fi or a local um, business that allows Wi-Fi connection, we've we've tried to connect them with those resources that those those places that have um, free Wi-Fi, as well as some of the local um, cable companies. They have mm-hmm. offered discounted um, internet services during this time, so we've we've been connecting them to those resources. The voice you hear is Katha Blackwell. She's vice president of Shelter and Supportive Housing Services with the Partnership Against Domestic Violence. And we're talking about how the organization is responding to a rise in domestic violence reports. But what's your response to the question of perhaps there were issues already in the household and and maybe the added stress of dealing with this pandemic, perhaps it could be related to employment issues or, or, you know, Maybe someone actually has contracted the virus and then there is that issue. Is it fair to say that perhaps there was some problems or impending problems in the household already before the pandemic hit? Absolutely. Um, And when it comes to domestic violence, we always stress that domestic violence is a choice. Abuse, being abusive is a choice. Um, There may be external you know, environmental issues that may be taking place, whether it's a virus, whether it's employment, whether it's alcohol or drugs, domestic violence was already there before these other environmental factors took place. And so we, we, try, to incur- we try to remind people that domestic violence is a choice. Um, abusers do not have to act this way. They are choosing to act this way. No matter whether you whether you're unemployed or not, or whether you're you know dealing with the, the 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 fear or racial tension in this nation, a variety pack of things may be going on. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it's a choice as to whether or not you're going to punch your loved one in the face, 
or push them down some stairs or drag them by their hair. That is a choice um, that abusers are making. And it's not, it's, it, it, the environmental factors can influence certain things or make you feel more uh, unat ease in the midst of the frustration you're already dealing with or the, um, the negative choices that people are already making. However, at the end of the day, domestic violence is a choice. This is personal for you as well, the work that you do, Katha. Yes, it is. Can you share with our listeners a little bit of that, what you're comfortable sharing absolutely. with? Oh, absolutely. I, um, as a child, I grew up in, in an abusive home. My um, father and my mother split at a, at when I was probably, I think, probably maybe four or five years old. And my mother remarried um, and a very abusive man. And so throughout my childhood, from elementary school through high school, I saw my mother get physically abused by a a very violent man. He would drag her down the stairs. He would um, take a knife and and stab her pillow. He would do, he would lie on her. He would, he would, he would do a, a variety pack of things on top of abusing me and my sister at that time. And so when it comes to domestic violence, it really hits home for me. Because I've 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 seen it I've 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 observed it and been engaged in it as a child that that was my childhood and even as a child when I would go and tell family members this is what's going on you know uh, you know grandma this is what's happening or tell an uncle or a family member even the police there were times as a child I had to call the police as well I realized at a young age that I only have so much power. I only have so much power to change this this situation around. And as a child, I never saw anyone come and try to try to fix the situation. So a child's point of view is very different from an adult. You, as a child, you only see what's in front of you, but there may be other things going on behind the scenes. But as a child, when you see this violence in front of you, you want to do something and you want to fix something, but you can't. And so for me. I knew that domestic violence was not right. I knew that this was not okay. This is not the life to live. And I allowed that desire to get out of that house, fuel me to get me to college, to get me to a career, to have a healthy lifestyle as an adult. So um, it it, it, it really touches my heart when we see uh, the children that we serve come from a similar environment Mm -hmm. and they they feel powerless to be able to do something and that's why there's times that you see so many teenagers who uh, may end up in jail because they were trying to protect their mother teenage boys who may be trying to protect their mother or even teenage girls trying to protect their mother from an abuser in the home because you can only take so much as a child you can only take so much or observe so much that at some point you're going to step in and try to stop the violence that's taking place in front of you. Did you ever ask your mom why we don't just leave mom? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I remember as a child telling her, you know, let's just leave. We don't, this is not acceptable. It's not okay. I remember um, when he had left when she had, you know, they had broken up or what have you. And she was calling me, telling me, you know, I'm thinking about letting him back in. And I was a teenager at the time. And I said, Mom, this is not, 
marriage, this is not healthy. You don't need him. You don't need him. And my mother was employed, you know, always had a job, um, very, you know, financially sustainable. But for some, those are the conversations I would have with her about, you know, this is not, this is not okay. I, I, I can't fathom letting this man come back into your home. Look at what he's done to us. And so, yes, I just to answer your question. Yes, I, I did. I did have those conversations with her. Did she ever leave him? They didn't leave. They didn't divorce until I think I was probably 17 or 18 years old. But she did get out. Um, she, she did. She did get out of that situation and never returned to another abusive relationship. Um, and now she's <laughs> she's living her best life <laughs> and she's happy. She's healthy. And, you know, when people think to themselves that they can't get out or that they they can't move forward with their life. When I see my mother, she's a testament. So, yes, she can. Yes, she can move on. Um, yes, she can get out. But, yes, she did. She did eventually leave. If you think about your mom not making that decision eventually, do you think she would be alive today? Absolutely not. I, I, you know, I think she would have been dead. She would have been dead had she not made the decision to completely let this man, get this man out of her life. She would have been dead. Kath, if someone listening to this program right now finds himself in a similar situation or knows of someone or a child in a similar situation, what resources are available to folks right now? Well, people who are listening and are in need of resources for, you know, getting them out of a situation like that, uh, like this, um, in every community across this nation, there's a domestic violence provider. There's a domestic violence coalition. There's a domestic violence hotline in every single state. All of them have resources or financial support to help people get out of domestic violence situations. Here and here, even in Atlanta, we have the resources to get someone to a safe place to get out of an abusive relationship. If they don't have a car, fine, we will send you an Uber. We will send you um, transportation to get out of that situation. We will provide you with rental assistance if you find your own place and you, you, you just need help with that deposit. We will help you. And there are agencies, just like Partnership Against Domestic Violence across this entire nation who have the means to support those who are ready to leave and find themselves having trying to figure out how to get out. Um, but even if they don't need financial assistance, there's free counseling services that are available just to talk with someone. Because a lot of times survivors don't necessarily want the relationship to end they want the abuse to stop. And so we're here to help them navigate through what steps need to be taken, what what can be done right now to help them while they're trying to figure things out, how to safety plan with them. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's listening that if you know of a friend or a family member or yourself, if you're in a domestic violence situation, in where you are, there is a domestic violence hotline available. What's the hotline number that folks can jot down right now? 
for Atlanta is 404-873-1766. And that's for Partnership Against Domestic Violence. We are open 24-7. We never close. And that number again is 404-873-1766. Or online at padv.org, correct? Yes, that's correct. Katha Blackwell, Vice President of Shelter and Supportive Housing Services at the Partnership Against Domestic Violence. Katha, thank you so much for the work that you all do in in our community, and thank you for sharing your own personal story. Thank you so much for your time. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.